Well, I want to say good morning to you this morning, and welcome to Stonesill Community Church. What a joy it is to have you here. One of the things that we want to do as a congregation is to listen and listen well. And so what we have talked about and discussed uh, is now becoming a reality here this morning, and that is that in the upcoming future uh, worship services, um, we are going to have a little component called, How Can We Love You Better? How Can We Love You Better? And it won't be in every service. It'll just be from time to time as the Lord leads. Um, it'll have uh, a, an ethnic component to it. Maybe how can we love Hispanics better? How can we love African American community better? How can we love Amish better? Uh, how can we love, uh, and, and then it may move to a vocational element. How can we love a police officer better? How can we love an, uh, an army person better? How can we love a teacher better? Okay, so it'll move in a number of arenas and through a different um, various identity markers. And that's the beautiful thing because we all need to learn to love better. And we're going to have the very first uh, installment of that series of, of brief five to ten minute presentations on how we can love a certain group of people better because of Jesus' love in us. And today I want to welcome someone that you're familiar with and she's going to talk how, about how we can love the Hispanic community better in our church and in our community at large. Will you please make welcome Mari Leach. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Mari Leach, like Pastor Joey said, and my husband, Tom Leach, is the youth pastor here at Stones Hill. And... Um, I was kind of, I didn't really know what to say when Pastor Joey asked me to speak on this subject, but yesterday um, we got together with my family at a birthday party and I just was maybe more observant as to uh, things that are different from the American culture compared to the Hispanic culture. So family is a big thing. You do what you can for your family and it's very big that you please the family and so, um, it's a large, close-knit family. You have multiple generations living under the same roof. And it is a very big thing to respect your elders, which is why you have a lot of grandparents or maybe older uncles or aunts that are living in the same household. And it's kind of like it takes a village to raise a child. That's kind of how they look at that. So you have all of these different people in your family that are speaking into your life. And one example that came to my mind, when I got married, my dad wasn't able to be here. But I had an uncle step up, and he was able to walk me down the aisle. And I had other families that came along, um, other members of my family that came along and took part in that, whether it's flowers or food, things like that. And so you just do what you can for family. It's very important. Uh, and family is not just your aunts and uncles. Sometimes it's great aunts, great uncles, third, fourth cousins. And so that's why you have like these just big gatherings um, as far as celebrations go. Um, you take a lot of advice from family. So when you're making a big decision in life, sometimes you go toward to all of those family members and kind of find advice or get some consultation on things, um, especially when it comes to school. Um, a lot of youth in the Hispanic culture tend to stay home because they want to be there to support their parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, or maybe even younger siblings. And so very few of them really reach out and go to 
a college that's you know halfway across across the country like maybe some American kids do um, and I'm kind of different in that I wanted something better for my family and my siblings and so I actually left the area and we my husband and I went to the military for a little bit but we came back home because we wanted to be here for you know my family and his family so um, you do have some that leave and then maybe come back to invest in the family um, I talked about celebrations. Celebrations are big. We celebrate everything. And when you do, it is a big, big party. <laughs> so yesterday, we had a birthday party for my cousins. Um, they, she's the only girl on that side of the family. And she turned one. And it was, there's fireworks, balloons, a Mexican clown. It was a fiesta. So I mean, when we have fun, we have fun. And there's lots of food. Food is a big thing. Uh, so anytime you get invited to something like that, please go, because it is, it's eye-opening and you then become part of that extended family so in the future they look at you as family and that's important again family is a big thing fiestas are a big thing um, one of the issues that I found growing up was that we were very proud and we didn't like to ask for help and I look back and I can see where maybe I missed out on the blessings of people trying to build into my life because I was too proud to ask for help. On my own, I thought our family could do it on our own. And that is being proud and thinking you can do it on your own. It sometimes can be a bad thing because, again, you miss out on the blessings. So my advice to you would be don't wait for someone to ask for help. Just be willing to bless that family. Uh, the food drives that Bill um, Daigie has organized, that's been a big blessing to this community, and a lot of people won't come out to that. So really keep your eyes out for those families that are struggling, and just take them, you know, a care package box with that food, because that makes a big difference. And again, be aware, there may be, you know, 10, 12 people in that household, um, but it is a big blessing, and, and they, they won't ask for help. So really be aware of that. Uh, a big thing for my kids trying to understand is time. So in the Hispanic or Latino community, it's totally opposite of what the American community sees. You know, we, being in the military, I learned everything is, you know, runs on a schedule. You have deadlines. You are very task-oriented. Everything's got to be done by a certain time. And in the Hispanic or Latino community, we don't look at, oh, this needs to be done by this time. No, we are focusing on relationships. So again, going back to the birthday party yesterday, um, we got there and they were still setting up, so we jumped in and helped set up. But you know, it, um, growing up, I went to friends' birthday parties and it was like, okay, you cut the cake at this time, you do presents at this time, you know, everything's very lined up in a timeline. But with my family, I mean, what normally would be maybe a two hour, three hour birthday party was like eight hours. So, I mean, we were, everything was spread out. You would eat over that whole entire time. You know, the pinata was like, it was just starting to get dark, so they did a pinata. And uh, so you can't expect everything to run on a timeline. You have to be very relaxed and enjoy making relationships because relationships are what matter. Family time is what matters. And so sometimes when you are in that environment, it's hard to like relax and you're like looking at the time like, okay, when are they gonna cut the cake? <laughs> well just really enjoy your time getting to know those people be patient don't rush them 
They really like, we really like to just talk and enjoy our time together with family. Um, another thing is, is just really make your way of, make your way around the room or um, the tables, just getting to know people. Um, that's one of the things that's really, I've relearned being home is like when we arrive somewhere, we go and greet every person of that household, which can take time if you have a big family. You know, so we greet my grandma when we get there, my aunt, my uncle, all of my cousins, um, you know, their kids, and even sometimes their in-laws are there. Um, so like I said, it's a, it's you turn into a big family because you have all of these extended parts of people that have married in that come to this party. And so just really enjoying your time not rushing to, you know, like, when are they going to do this? When are they going to do that? Just really just sit back and enjoy it. Um, thank you for letting me share. If you guys have any questions, please don't feel, um, don't hesitate to ask me. But um, I hope that kind of opened your eyes a little bit as to far as far as how to better understand the community. So, you know, reaching out, praying, how can you bless these people, taking your time to get to know them, and really, if they invite you to come to a dinner, please go. It is, it's such an experience. Um, I know my kids are still kind of learning a lot of that, but uh, I've really enjoyed seeing them learn some of those aspects from that culture. Thank you. Thank you, Mari, and thank you for being here and hearing, and um, now we've got something new to think about, and we can incorporate that in our everyday life. So I trust that we will, and I know that you will, because I know your heart, and your heart is for your neighbors, for your community. And I love a multicultural environment, because I get to learn so much, and I have neighbors, um, uh, some of whom sometimes have their celebrations, and I always enjoy the music, even if I'm a mile away. I enjoy the music. It's awesome. And so um, thank you, thank you, thank you. We want to continue this morning, and hopefully, Lord willing, we will wrap up a series that I've been doing called Hidden Figures. And we've been looking at personalities in the Bible, uh, primarily women who have been kind of tucked away within the pages of the Bible, and yet they make significant contributions to the story. And God uses them in an incredible way. And so today we're going we're gonna to deal with our final hidden figure. And it's really intriguing to me, and I've enjoyed studying um, that for this sermon today. I'm, I'm excited about sharing it with you. And the hidden figure today is going to share with all of us that there comes a time when we have to fight for justice. Uh, there comes a time when we use our influence, our power, to whatever degree we have that, to fight injustice in the world. And there's a lot of injustice in the world. And so as we look at this topic and as we look at, at this uh, hidden figure, Pilate's wife, in case you've been wondering, Pilate's wife, basically what she is going to say to us is, stop, don't go any further. Stop! Don't go any further. That's her message. And we're going to see why she says it like that and in so many ways. Um, after we, we deal with 
the scripture passage, which is Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 19, uh, I'm going to primarily have us focus on verse 19 of Matthew 27. And so we're going to be camping right there. And then after that, I want to share with you a very intriguing story, a story that I've always loved and that I've appreciated. It is the Rosa Parks story, and uh, perhaps you have heard it. Um, maybe there's some details of that story that are still a little vague to you. I'm going to clarify for you some of those details today, and you're going to see a, a very vivid illustration from 1955, uh, something that happened that really changed the direction of all Americans, really, and people around the world. And then I'm going to present to you, and I want you to be bearing this out in your mind or thinking of this, I'm going to present to you that you have a choice today. You have a choice between two revolutions. You can revolt according to Barabbas, an insurrectionist, uh, a rebel, a murderer, a thief, and that can be the revolutionary track that you take. Or you have a second revolutionary track, and that is the track of Jesus. Pilate had two revolutionaries in front of him, and he placed those two revolutionaries in front of the people. One is Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. You'll see it in the text. Jesus Barabbas and the other one is Jesus of Nazareth. Which are you going to choose? There's going to be revolution. You can't avoid it. Which revolution do you want? Which revolution do you want to commit to? And live according to? Which revolution do you want to espouse and internalize and live out in your life? There's two revolutions. Barabbas, Jesus of Nazareth. You're going to pick today. And so as we think about these things, and, and then we'll do a series closing. So these are, this is how we want to kind of organize our thoughts here this morning. And so let's just get right to the text. Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 19. And again, we're going to really camp on verse 19, and I'll share a few words of explanation as I am, as I am uh, uh, wanting to do, uh, and that is to explain a little bit about the context. And so these, these verses that I'm going to read that lead up to verse 19 is to help establish the backstory of what's happening in the text. Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 19. Meanwhile, on the screen, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said so. Verse 12, when he was accused, that is, Jesus was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus Verse 14, made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. He would do this each year, annually. Verse 16, at the, t at the time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Yeshua Barabbas, or Barabbas, Baraba, meaning the son of a father. 
And a lot of people feel he was a son of a prominent rabbi. So we could say he was the son of a pastor. He got some of his father's charisma. And he was not just a common murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He was a revolutionary. He wanted to raise an army. He wanted to drive out the occupying Romans. He wanted to dismantle systems. He wanted to establish himself as Israel's king. And that is why Barabbas, Barabbas is being held for execution. You know, Matthew does not explain who Barabbas was. What does that tell you? Matthew is writing for a Jewish audience. This guy was so well known as an insurrectionist and a rebel leader that he did not need to explain to the Jewish readers because they all knew who he was. The Gospel of John, in writing about Barabbas, John writes for a Gentile audience many years after Matthew writes. And so John tells us that he was, he was one who had taken part in rebellion. John chapter 18 verse 40. Every Jew knew who Barabbas was. He was something of a, of a local celebrity. He was a, he was a hero. He was a revolutionary. And instead of selecting some unknown prisoner, Pilate deliberately chose the most notorious prisoner he had, kind of a local celebrity because he was a rebel, and he places this robber, this murderer, John chapter 18, verse 40, Mark chapter 15, verse 7, this robber, this murderer, this rebel. Pilate reasoned if he would place this guy in front of the crowd of protesters of that day, that there is no way they would ever choose Jesus Barabbas. Verse 17. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out, that is Pilate knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. And again, I want to focus mainly on verse 19. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat. Well, what's that mean? Why does he say it that way? Well, it's interesting because one resource that I consulted this week said that the Jewish people, for whatever reason, would not go into the main judgment area of uh, where Pilate would hold court. And so, because they would not go into that main judgment area, he had to literally move the judgment seat, something known as the judgment seat. He had to move it out and into, into a, onto a, a patio area. And the people that were in the street or in the courtyard down below, they would be then available to, to see and to hear. They could have a, a, a good hearing and, and they could have a, a nice visual on Pilate who is now sitting in the judges, on the judge's bench in the official seat of authority. And so Pilate has taken this out of the judgment hall. He's moved it out into a public setting. And he sat the judgment seat down and he himself is going to sit on this seat and by that he's going to say, I am now, court is now in session. 
It's a genuine judicial act that I set up on to do at this time. So he's seated on the judgment seat. And now you have to know, when he's sitting on the judgment seat, he was not to be interrupted under any certain circumstances. No one was to interrupt him when he assumed that official capacity. And this is what's so captivating in our text. His wife breaks a very well-known protocol. She interrupts him with a messenger with a handwritten note, evidently, that she's going to give to him while he's seated on the judgment bench before this protesting crowd Okay, this never happened. And his wife knows Roman protocol and legal protocol. It's not right to interrupt the governor while he's acting as a judge, especially in such a serious matter where, where men are going to lose their lives, potentially. This tells you something. Matthew is telling you something. He's trying to tell you that there's a sense of urgency in Pilate's wife. There's a sense of, of weightiness in Pilate's wife. This is how strongly she feels the message that she is going to send to Pilate while he's in process of sitting on the judge's bench. This tells me a couple of things. It tells me that Pilate's wife carried a lot of weight with Pilate. You know, when your wife gives you a handwritten note on certain occasions... Letting you know there's something you need to know about. There's something you need to reconsider. There's something you need to stop and think about before you jump in. You ever got a note like that from a spouse? You know it's, it, it's not just a trusted advisor. It is someone very close to you. Someone who cares for you. Someone who loves you. And now she is sending him a note while he is on the judgment bench. You know... I know she carried weight because as I, I was curious, and as I dug into the other gospel perspectives of this event, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when I dug into that, you know what I discovered? Pilate tries four times to set Jesus free. Unsuccessfully. But he attempts it four times. I'll say more about that in a moment. But normally... As I, as I kind of did my biographical study of, of Pilate and what kind of a man he was, and we have extra, uh, extra biblical resources that tell us what kind of man Pilate was. And he's not this noble guy that maybe we, we, we think that he was as a governor. In fact, his approach was pretty much, you're going to get executed, get out of my court, next person. That's his approach. There was once some protesters in uh, protesting a, a financial decision he had made in Jerusalem. And he had Antifa-like demonstrators embedded in the protesting group. And on a signal, they pulled out their clubs and their daggers and they went to work. That's the kind of man Pilate was. And so I've, I've got a question. I was, I was captivated. What's he going to do? He has his wife that he trusts, who carries obviously a lot of weight with him. She is interrupting a very important event that's going down right now in front of the protesting crowds of Jerusalem. Is he going to stay true to his, to his 
rough and abrasive approach? Or is he going to waffle under the weight of a note from his wife? I'm curious. This is what the note says. On the screen. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today. Moments ago. In a dream because of him. So a Joey Nelson loose paraphrase of her note to pilot her husband. She is saying, stop! Stop! Don't go any further, pilot! She knew how Pilate was leaning. And that's why there's urgency. And, and it's like she's saying, Pilate, honey, I have had an ominous sign just moments ago, in fact, and I entreat you, Pilate, to hear what I'm saying. She even says in the text, she says that I have suffered a great deal. And in the New King James Version, we read, I have suffered many things, she says. And it plays off of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 about how He would have, he would have to suffer many things. And so, He's going to suffer many things after He arrives in Jerusalem. And now we have Pilate's wife who has a dream. It's more of a nightmare. And she says, I have a dream and I have suffered many things. What Jesus was talking about only days before and weeks before, Pilate's wife is now dreaming about in her dream. You know, in my mind, in my imagination, I can see this kind of playing out. Pilate's wife is in this deep sleep. And I think she saw Jesus in her dream. And if I were to shoot a movie about it with a scene, with this particular dream or nightmare scene in the movie, I think I would, in my mind, I think I would pan to the darkness. And then I would, with my camera, I would pan to the crowds. And then I would pan to the children that, that were crying in the crowd. And, and then I think I would zoom in on a single child without his mother. I think I would show people protesting and angrily waving their fists and sticks and trying to burn everything down and topple statues. And I think in my mind, in all of this, I think the child would be confused and the camera would focus on a single child. And he would be crying and looking and searching for his, the face of a familiar mother turning in all directions, searching for the familiar face he called mother. And then I think, in my imagination, I would cut to the cross in her dream. I'd show the crucifixion, I think, in the distance. The music would be intense. There would be thorns and whips and spikes and there would be blood and there would be tears and there would be agony and there would be spit and there would be veins that were popping out in necks and foreheads and, and, and I would show a supernatural hand splitting the sky in two. And then the music would stop. And the camera would pan to the town square. And it would zoom in on Pilate, her husband. And instead of Pilate sitting in the judgment seat, 
he would be laying across it. And the ravens would be coming for him. Oh! Oh! You know, I didn't even practice that this week. That came out pretty good. Oh! They'd pick at his eyes. Oh! Oh! They would tear into the stomach. They would be swooping down. And then she would wake up. And she would find herself saying in a voice with a shrill, No! Stop! Don't go any further! Don't do it! Don't do it, Pilate! Stop! 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 And her servants would tumble into the room and see the sight of their disheveled and shaking mistress scrawling words on a napkin that was used at the state dinner the night before. Here she says, take this to Pilate. Make sure he gets it immediately. Take it to Pilate. But he's on the judgment. Take it to Pilate. Take it to Pilate. And she drops to the floor in my mind. And that nightmare marks her for the rest of her life. The text tells us while Pilate on the screen was sitting on the judge's seat his wife sent him this message don't have anything to do with that innocent man for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him and I think old rough and, and abrasive Pilate looks with disgust at this messenger who delivers this untimely note that he thinks is untimely. And then he opens it up and when he's just about to curse the messenger that had the audacity to break Roman legal protocol and inter interrupt him on the bench, he recognizes the handwriting of someone very close to him. This is for my, my wife? And he knew it was from his wife. And do you know what the first word on the note read? Did you know in Greek, the first word that is used? Nothing is the first word. It's, it's like when, when you put the word first in a quotation or a message, it, you are drawing emphasis to that word. And so it's her way of saying, she starts the note with nothing. It's like putting it in all caps. It's like underlining it and emphasizing it any way that she could to get Pilate's attention on that napkin. She wrote out in large all caps, nothing. Nothing. Don't do, don't do anything. Do nothing, Pilate. Do nothing to this just one. Don't offend your conscience, Pilate. Don't violate your conscience, Pilate. Nothing. Don't scourge him. Don't deliver him up. Don't abuse him. Stop. Don't go any further. As if to say, Pilate, dear one, 
Should you be the only one, my husband, to stand up, then you do it. Just stand with him. Stand with him. Stand by him. Stand for him. That's the message of the note. You remember, you guys remember September 11, 2001. I know that you do, but do you remember the moment when someone whispered into the president's ear while he was in front of that special classroom of second graders in the elementary school? Remember that moment? The moment, and we kind of know now from reading the accounts that before he goes into the classroom, the president had been briefed that, hey, we think a, like a small engine plane has crashed into the, one of the towers in New York City. And so he had been briefed on that. And then when the second plane hit, everybody around him knew except for the president, everybody knew that it was not another twin-engine plane and the first tower that was hit was not by a twin-engine plane. These were commercial-sized jetliners full of fuel and people and they were intentionally being crashed into the World Trade Center buildings. Andrew Card the guy that gave the president the message, said that he knew he couldn't have a dialogue with the president. It was kind of like Pilate's wife couldn't talk to Pilate while he was on the bench, and they knew they couldn't interrupt the president while he was speaking to this class. It was not proper protocol to do so. But they knew they had an emergency. And Andrew Card said, I walked into the room, and when the president wasn't speaking, I slipped up beside him, and I whispered 11 words. In his ears. A second plane has hit the tower. America is under attack. You remember how sober the president's face got in that moment? I'll never forget it. America is under attack. That was Pilate. After he got that message and he read that note and he saw the all caps of nothing, nothing, do nothing, Pilate, do nothing to this just one. He's just sitting there now. He sees this note and there's a pause. And he's sober. Just like the president was when he found out America was under attack. That's Pilate. Time seems to stand still. Protesters are threatening to burn it all down if Pilate doesn't comply with their demands. Pilate, since his sense for justice obviously was stiffened by the note from his wife 
He tries to send Jesus to Herod when he found out that Jesus was from Galilee, which was under Herod's jurisdiction. He tried to offer to punish Jesus without stopping short of execution. Thirdly, he, tries, he asks the people to choose either Jesus or Barabbas as one to be released at the Passover. Fourthly, he presents Jesus beaten up and bloody. He's bruised. He's got black eyes. Blood is all over his body and his face trying to stir the people's pity. And John has Pilate saying three times, I find no basis for a charge against him. Matthew goes on in Matthew 27, verse 24, to say these words. So Pilate, when he saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but instead an uproar was developing, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this man. You see to it. You know, um, I'm going to make the argument today that Pilate's wife was a secret follower, a hidden figure who followed Jesus. Why so? In the New American Standard Bible, we read, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. She urged him that he have nothing to do with Jesus, whom she describes as that righteous man. And that catches my eye. And I do a little research on that. And what I learn is, that is a messianic title. You only say that about people that you believe in. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, we read, they even killed those who, predict, who predicted the coming of the righteous one. In 1 John 2, 1, my dear children, John writes, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And that's what Pilate's wife says here. You don't, do, you stop, Pilate. This is a righteous one. This is Messiah. And so I think Pilate's wife has had an experience that's changed her life. She's a hidden figure. She's tucked away in the pages of the history books. And Pilate's wife, a Jesus-following hidden figure, has this premonition of what was to come. And she had a willingness to stand up against injustice, against the innocent. And Pilate's wife is remembered here by the Gospel writer for having the courage to speak even though her plea was ultimately rejected. Can I ask you a question, church? Can I ask you a question, those of you who are out there, pod parishioners in the online world? Have you ever written a note for Jesus? Have you ever given a message to someone on His behalf? In fact, to make it more personal. How are you going to respond to the message that I'm giving today? Will you stand with Him in sacrificial love? 
Will you repudiate all other worldviews that vie for our attention and our, our, our finances and our time and our allegiances? I talked to you about one of those last week. A worldview that's ripping our country apart. And it's, and it's evolved into a religion. It's very scary. You know, it is remarkable to me that a woman... This hidden figure was the only human being that we know of who had the courage to plead the cause of our Savior during these dreadful hours when His own disciples forsook Him. And even the women followers would only watch from a distance. They all felt so helpless. And when the fanatical protesters cried out, Crucify Him, crucify Him, she had the courage to stand and say, and she used all of her influence, all of her position, all the power that she had and whatever measure she had it, she comes in alongside and she says, stop. Don't go any further. You know, one pastor tells about a junior high kid named Roger. The church had just watched The Passion of the Christ and we, we probably most of you have seen that and the group was kind of absorbing the message of that movie. Mel Gibson kind of stars in that or at least he, he directs that. And uh, this whole group is just gripped by this traumatic rendition of the passion of the Christ. And Roger, a little seventh grader, he comes up to his pastor and he grips his pastor's hand and his eyes are filled with tears and his lips are quivering. And for a long time, he couldn't say anything after watching that movie. And finally, with great emotion, little seventh grade Roger says three words. It isn't right. The way the soldiers treated Jesus wasn't right. The way the witnesses lied about Jesus wasn't right. The way Pilate cravenly tried to wash his guilt away wasn't right. The crown of thorns wasn't right. The scourging wasn't right. Did you know that there are little children that are sexually exploited in places all over the globe and they are physically harmed? I stand with Roger. It isn't right. Did you know there are, psych there are children that are psychologically harmed through forced child soldiering where they're forced to kill people and torture people? Little innocent 10, 12 year old boys. I stand with Roger. It isn't right. There are child traffickers who, who take advantage of parents in extreme poverty and they manipulate those parents to sell their children to pay off debts. Parents will even intentionally handicap their children so they can panhandle for money, soliciting the sympathy of tourists. It isn't right. The lack of clean water for citizens in conflict countries of, Af of the African continent results in death and disease for hundreds of people when all they need is clean water. It isn't right. There are millions of babies of all races 
who never get to live because very few people, and thankfully this is changing, but for so long, very few people were willing to be a voice for them. And can society ever be considered just until all the little defenseless, unprotected ones are allowed to live and thrive with everyone else regardless of their skin color? Black lives matter, especially those in the womb. It isn't right. There are people who because of their skin color are terrified to be around people of authority because of how they've been treated or the unfairness of maybe a prison sentence. It isn't right. There are people who because they are, they are in what many characterize as a dominant group. They are verbally abused and many are forced to absorb racial insults because that's the trend if you are a, a person of a certain race. It isn't right. There are college professors who don't subscribe to the atheistic worldview of Darwinism and the social Darwinism of critical race theory with its roots in Marxism which derives and is born out of Frankfurt, Germany in 1930-1940. through 1940. These professors are losing their jobs and they're denied tenure at their universities and no one will publish their stuff or hire them. It isn't right. There are war atrocities, programs of ethnic cleansing, and families that have lost everything without legal recourse in other countries of the world simply because they were Christian. It isn't right. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Cowardice asked the question, Is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but one must take it because it is right. It is right to take it. Pilate's wife awakens the impulse against injustice. And so when we talk about the injustices of the world, we have to begin with what bothers us. We immerse ourselves in that issue. We write out our complaint. We turn our complaint into prayers of lament. And church... If you can change the bad stuff in the world, the stuff that you feel passionate about, the injustices of the world, if God calls you to take on an issue of injustice and change what you can. But I want you to remember, church, Jesus came that your joy can be full. And if you carry the weight of the world all the time on your shoulders as you wage your fight, it will eat you alive. You'll never survive it. So you have to know the balance. You engage 
You, you begin with what bothers you. You engage. You learn. You write. You pray. You work. You know, we have to know the balance. And Pilate's wife was so moved that she used her power and influence to try to stop injustice in her time. And so you shall use yours. We may not all do the same good. And that's okay. Some may be called to do a different kind of good than you're doing. See, so nobody can do social work in Appalachia and inner city ministry in the South Bronx and hospital counseling in Fort Wayne and Bible study where you write your own curriculum on your block where you live and all the while preparing a new Chinese translation of the New Testament and raise your family of five to love Jesus with three homemade meals a day. I get tired just thinking about that. Nobody, we're not all called to do the same things. We can't issue marching orders for all Christ followers saying that they all have to, they all have to fight injustice the same exact way. We all have issues that we feel passionate about. And there comes a time when we have to stand up and say, Stop. Don't go any further. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about give a person a fish and they'll eat for a day, teach a person how to fish and they'll eat for a lifetime. But some will also ask, Well, who owns the pond? And others will say, well, who polluted the pond? And others will say, well, well, why does a fishing license have to cost so much? So we need to keep asking the questions. And eventually we'll get to the root of the injustices of the world and we can remedy them. See, my calling is different than yours. I'm a worldview guy. And so my contribution in this time of upheaval is to understand the worldview that is behind what we're seeing happening in the world today. That's how God has put me together. And if you notice all the things I've essentially written and the things I've been saying, preaching in sermons and conversations, essentially is this. In our passion for justice and equality, don't get sucked up into a worldview that is becoming a surrogate religion. Be careful. You may be a shoe on the shoes on the street person, so do it peaceably. You may be a legal person, you can battle things out in the courts. You may be a needs person, and you meet basic needs in your town. You may need, be a researcher, and so you read and you write. You may be a song person, so you compose the music. You know, um, there was a lady by the name of Rosa Parks one day who decided in so many ways to say stand up. She stood up or she, she refused to stand up, we should say. And she basically said stop, don't go any further. It was December the 1st, 1955, and she boarded a crowded green and white Cleveland Avenue bus in the small town of Montgomery, Alabama. 
She was tired. It was the end of a long, hard day of work. She had been stitching clothing and ironing shirts at the Montgomery Fair department store. By the third stop, the bus was nearly full and all the Caucasians were sitting up front and there was one Caucasian man that was left standing on the bus. The bus driver, James Blake, looked in his mirror and he looked at Rosa Parks and three other African-American men who were beside her and they had remained seated just behind the white section. They were in the African-American section of the bus and, and they remained seated and they were in their section but now they were being asked to move by the bus driver. He said, all right folks, I want those two seats, he shouted. Those two seats. And of course, Montgomery's laws of segregation demanded that all four Americans would have had to stand in order to, African-Americans would have had to have stood in order to let the man sit as no African-American at that time was allowed to sit parallel with the Caucasian. The driver of the bus on this December evening was the same driver, by the way, who had once removed Rosa Parks from a bus, another bus ride. She refused to enter the back door of the bus. And that was in 1943. And so now, in 1955, Rosa didn't feel like being pushed around anymore. And she was in the non-white section and she wasn't going to move. And at first, no one did move. And the driver yells out again, You better make it right on yourselves and light on yourselves and, and let me have those seats. Let me have those seats. Three men stood and they walked to the back of the bus. And Rosa Parks just shuffled up towards the window. And he says, look woman, are you going to move? And she was tired, but she was firm. I'm not moving this time. Ah, no. She wasn't frightened, she wasn't angry, she wasn't mean. She was just tired. After long hours and second-class citizenship in Montgomery, Alabama for years, she was tired. She sat there until someone came to arrest her. And she says, as she re recalled later, I was thinking that the only way to let people know how I felt was being I was being mistreated and everything. The only thing w for me to do was to do exactly what I did, to resist the order. She challenged the court and several protesters, peaceful protesters, met her and her lawyer at the courthouse and she quickly was found guilty of breaking the bus segregation laws and she was fined $10 as well as $4 for court costs. Her lawyer, of course, appeals it and within days, the African-American citizens of Montgomery, Alabama had approached Martin Luther King to help organize and coordinate a bus boycott. Three quarters of the passengers who used the bus were African-American. And so the system may have been based on prejudice, but it was highly concerned with economics. It didn't take long for the African-American citizens to make their point. And so in the spirit of what Jesus said once, in Matthew, 4, Matthew chapter 5, verse 40, And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. 
Martin Luther King Jr. lived by that. And so the person that's wronged by injustice, they can give up their clothing to rebuke the one committing the injustice. The African Americans of Montgomery, Alabama, they turned around and they said to the bus companies, you guys want one seat. You can have all of them. And they walked and they carpooled to their jobs. Now friends, that's how you protest. That's how it's done. I don't know whose playbook people are utilizing today. But M.L. King Jr. and Rosa Parks know how to do it. And I love the story. Rosa said, all around the city, you can see empty buses with just a few people toward the front. All those empty seats. All that gasoline. All those uh, transportation costs and upkeep costs. Nobody paying the fees, putting the bill. You see, you can push back against the system and challenge the power holders without ruining the lives of people. If you're blocking roads and you're keeping ambulances and police vehicles and fire trucks from reaching the victims of whose lives of people that are depending on a timely response, I cannot see Jesus in any of it. In any of it. I will not align with that. And especially when I look at the movement that is prevalent today as a movement, it is antithetical to everything I read about Jesus in the gospel. I will not align with it. MLK and Rosa, they knew exactly what they were protesting. And they had a vision for it. King didn't want a revolution where one dominant group in a particular city took over and began to oppress another group of people that they saw as their oppressors. King said, the real goal is not to defeat the, 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 a person of another race or color, but to awaken a sense of shame within the oppressor and to challenge his false sense of superiority. He says the end goal is reconciliation. The end goal is redemption. The end goal is a creation of a beloved community where all men would treat each other as brothers and equals. The time has come to move forward from protest to reconciliation and let King's words ring forth in the cities and communities of the world at this time. The time has come. Set protest aside. Let's move toward reconciliation. Let's move toward brothers and sisters that God has called us to be. So at 5.45 a.m. on December the 21st, 1955, over a year later, Martin Luther King boarded a Montgomery, Alabama bus and he chose to sit in the front. Reverend Glenn Smiley a, a, a Caucasian minister who had long worked with King for racial justice, after 382 days of peaceful, nonviolent protest in the form of bus boycotts, the African Americans of Montgomery had achieved their goal and the world shifted. 
what MLK realized was that Jesus has it right. All, all of the nonviolent action, well strategized and well placed and well timed, the Jesus way made a difference. What am I saying this morning? There's going to come a time in your life where you're going to have to stand up for the innocent. You can do this in nonviolent ways. There's going to come a time in your life when you're going to have to act against injustice. Someone is going to be unfairly treated and you don't have to be even a majority to have a powerful impact. And there's going to come a time when God's going to give you a dream and somebody's going to pass you a note and somebody's going to proclaim a message And what you do in those moments is going to determine so much for your future and the future of the people that you love. So today, I place before you two revolutions. Who are you going to choose? Are you going to choose a revolutionary Savior? Or will you choose a revolutionary rebel? To lead your causes of injustice. Pilate had to make a decision. What was he going to do with Jesus called Christ? And it's not so much the story of Jesus before Pilate. As much as it is the story of Pilate before Jesus. It is Pilate. It is Caiaphas. It is the reader of Matthew's Gospel. And inevitably, it is you and it is me who are on trial. What will we do with Jesus called Christ? We have Barabbas. We have Christ. One pillaged and killed and protested and burned the system down. The other loved and he suffered and he laid his life down. Two revolutions. Which are you going to align with? Pilate had two Jesuses on his hands. You have two Jesuses in front of you today. Isn't it amazing, church, that they chose Barabbas? Isn't that astounding? Why? Why would you choose an insurrectionist? Why would, we, why would you choose a robber? Why would, we, why would you choose a murderer? Instead of Jesus, the Christ. You know what one pastor suggested? Why did they choose Barabbas? Because you can always stop a Barabbas revolution. You can... You can bring in the army or you can bring in the SWAT teams or you can bring in the National Guard and you can put down that rebellion in just a few short minutes. You can always stop a revolution like Barabbas. But how do you stop Jesus? They nailed Him to a cross 
They didn't realize they were nailing Him to a cross. They put Him on that cross. The sinful nature of all humanity was spiked to that cross. And Jesus Christ nailed to the cross was more than just a political radical. He was God's answer to the human dilemma. And on that cross, Christ was bearing my sins. He was bearing your sins. In His own body, He was proclaiming a liberation on that cross. He shed His blood to cleanse me and of all of my sin to set me free and to speak a new identity over my life. And I'm no longer just white what happens if I get severely burned and I turn totally pink? I'm no longer just male. What happens if I'm in an accident and my anatomy is radically changed? I'm no longer just an American. What happens if my country is defeated and my flag no longer flies at the top of the pole? You see, this Jesus speaks a new identity. No matter if my nation's number one or number ten, no matter what gender I am, no matter what color my skin is, I still have worth. I have value. I have something to offer to the world regardless of my skin color, my national identity, and my ethnicity, and my national identity. I have worth and value because the Son of God died for me. He died for me. And He died for you. And that's why you have value. Regardless of your skin color. Regardless of your ideology. Regardless of the language that you speak. And the culture that you hail from. And the who your mama and who your daddy were. That has to be our ultimate identity. And I have value. Simply because of that. Hear me church. Hear me world. Jesus says, I'm bringing an invasion on planet earth and the power of God is on the move and I want you to imagine with me regardless of your ethnicity and your, and your identity markers in your life, the things that you think give you an identity. He says, I want you to imagine with me what it would be like if you lived in a world where you can set up your businesses and not be taxed to the limit. I want you to imagine a world without sorrow, hatred, grief. Imagine a world without poverty, sickness, and injustice. Imagine a world without racial strife or loneliness. Imagine a world that is without guilt or unhappiness or mental illness or family breakdown or personal addiction that cheats you out of so much joy in your life. Imagine a world in which all the brokenness, emotional and social and spiritual and political and physical, all of the brokenness has been completely eliminated because of all of the opposition to God's love and justice, whether in the human heart or whether in your own body or whether in all the human institutions in the world. All of that has been annihilated and put down so everything God wants for you is affected. I have a dream. A new dream today. I have a new dream today that this can be achieved. And you are called as an outpost of the kingdom of God. You are the local church. You are the one that represents the agenda of the king. And I know you're full of the love of the Lord. And I know you will stand for injustice for those who are being unjustly treated. I know you will stand. I know you will write that note. I know you will pass that to whoever needs to receive it. I know you will issue forth a message.
for the Savior. You know, history tells us, and I'm going to close. History tells us that seven years after Pilate had this guy, Jesus called the Christ, scourged and crucified. He was banished to Gaul by Caligula, the Roman emperor. Eusebius, a church historian, reports that Pilate was exiled to Gaul, a distant region to the northwest of Italy, beyond the Alps in France. And he's there he appears to have suffered a mental breakdown. And Pilate went into the darkness of the night, and like Judas Iscariot before him, he hung himself. He couldn't bear. And oh, if he could go back and just look at that note one more time. Oh, dear Pilate, husband of mine, oh, husband of mine, if you would never stand for anything else in the world, will you stand for me one more time? Will you stand for this guy? I don't care what happens if you lose your job, if we have to get on horse back and flee to the wilderness and tuck away somewhere where they'll never find us. Will you please do me this favor and stand for this just one? Oh, if he could go back. And get that note one more time on the judge's bench. Can I ask you today? What is it going to take? Is it going to take a dream? A nightmare? Upon the night seasons of your life? To bring you to a place where you align yourself with the rebel Jesus? Is it going to take a wife passing you a note? In your most critical hour, it will it be a sermon from your pastor? Will it be a wreck on the road? Will it be a funeral you attend? Will it be a trial? Will it be a protesting mob destroying your life? Will it be a video, a breakdown, a political disaster, a natural disaster, a diagnosis, a betrayal? What is it going to take? There's a song from my childhood. Softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. See on the portals, He's waiting and watching. He's watching for you and for me. Come home. Come home, you who are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Oh, the final verse, oh for the wonderful love He has promised promise for you and for me though we have sinned he has mercy and pardon pardon for you for me are you caught up in something are you caught up in a worldview that's just ripping your family apart 
Are you caught up in a worldview, whether it's critical race theory or other viewpoints out there that's just tearing your marriage apart, that's ripping internally, ripping at your spiritual peace? Are you, have you been sucked in? Can I, can I use the impact of a hidden figure, Pilate's wife, whose name is not even given? Could I say, stop, don't go any further. Come home. Come home. Will you pray with me? <laughs> so Father, we thank you for this day. One more time. You've been with me. Thank you. You've been my strength. You've been my guide as I've worked in the Word and I've delivered the Word one more time and let the church say amen to what has been proclaimed today. And I ask and pray in Jesus' name that we'll stand and speak your truth in an age where people hate the one that says it. We'll speak your truth and we will stand firmly behind that rebel Jesus that's the rebel I choose. That's the revolution I want. That's the one I want to be a part of. That rebel Jesus who knows how to get it done. Who knows how to absorb the worst that humanity can give. And he rises from the dead. And he, 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 he commits and accomplishes the leading political coup of the world. He came out of the grave on Easter morning. And so I have a dream today that His revolution will be that which we live with, that which we align with, and that which we live out. And when you call us to touch other parts of our world, stand up for those who are unfairly treated, to write notes and issue forth messages, we'll be faithful. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to turn things over to our ushers once again. You've been a wonderful group.